This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, and investors shaping the future of the agriculture industry. I'm really trying to think of how best to set up this episode here today. In short, I can tell you it was uh, perspective altering for me. We're talking cell-grown meat, so different from plant-based meats that's been in the news. This is an attempt to ride that wave of impossible burger or beyond meat or anything like that. This is a look at what's really going on with those companies, specifically one company that's trying to grow real meat without the animal. So it's it's through cell cultures and to me, this interview today does the best job that, that I have heard, or at least that I've been a part of, of explaining the case for cell-grown meat, and it provides probably the best look that I have found as to what's going on in that industry today, why it's exciting, and also why you haven't yet eaten any cell-grown meat. I get discouraged when I see, especially on social media, debates around these topics that, that seem to get distilled down to, well, if it's not you know the way it's always been done, then it has no merit and I'll never buy it and it's not as good as the real thing. And okay, you're always going to get consumers that feel that way. I, I, I get it. I understand. But I, I really think that there is enough here to merit a real honest and deeper look than just that, hey, you can't have fish without growing in the ocean. It, it's, it, I understand how that how far-fetched that might sound first time you hear it, and it, it certainly did for me and, and perhaps many of you, but I, I really think there's some exciting stuff happening here. Anyway, we have on the show Mike Selden. Mike is the co-founder and CEO of Finless Foods. Essentially, they cultivate fish meat without the fishing or without the fish farming, without the fish at all, really. They're, they're just uh, culturing these cell tissues. It's kind of a wildly different way to look at the future of agriculture. As you know, I view the future of ag as very nuanced, a portfolio approach, I commonly call it, which is that it's going to be a lot of things that feed the world in the future, some of which will definitely involve fishing that's been around as, as long as humans have, and some of it will involve fish farming, and some of it will involve uh, companies like Finless Foods doing what they're doing. So it's really worth taking a look. I love this interview with Mike. I usually try to cut my interviews down to less than 40 minutes for an episode. This one's over that. I think it'll be worth your time to listen all the way to the end. We even get into some kind of Jurassic Park-like reality stuff towards the end and some existential questions such as, what does it mean to be alive? It's super interesting stuff. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Here's my interview with Mike Selden. He's going to start off by talking about sort of at a high level what it is Finless Foods does. Yeah, we make fish. So what we're doing is we are growing fish from one small sample of muscle. We pull that out of the fish and we give it the like right environment and nutrients that it needs to grow the cells to divide and create more of itself. And the idea is to grow an effectively infinite amount of fish by just growing it directly from the cells and just feeding it what the cells like to eat. And the point of that is to create like a really high quality, high end fish that 
is entirely, you know, on a cellular level, the same as what people are eating today, but no mercury, no plastic, no need to use antibiotics, no need to add growth hormones, and there's also no need to go fishing. Um, the ocean's under a lot of strain and it's trying to feed a lot of people, and we're hoping to fix that. And then also entirely without animal cruelty or mistreatment of animals because we're growing it directly from the cells. We're not growing the bones, no skin. So no whole animals are needed after that first initial sample. And yeah, it's been a long journey from, you know, from biochem at university to here, but it's been lots of fun and interesting. And it's been, it's been really cool to get to know the agriculture community much better as, as we've explored this company. Yeah. And, and t- tell us about your, your product offering. So uh, I imagine you're going to maybe start with one product and expand to others, but what's, what's the current product look like and, and uh, how close are we to kind of commercial availability? That's a good question. So, you know, we're totally in R&D operation right now. We're not selling anything on the market, but we intend to within the next few years. And the first thing that we're really focusing on is bluefin tuna. And we think that bluefin tuna is a really good initial move to market because it has a lot of things that people like, but also a lot of things that people don't like. You know, bluefin tuna is on the threatened species list, at least specific bluefin tuna is. And so it's like a conservation effort to try and move people's eating habits away from that and towards land-produced bluefin. But also the supply side itself is extremely constrained. People have been attempting to farm bluefin for four decades now and have so far been mostly unsuccessful. There's really only one operation worldwide that can grow the tuna all the way from embryo up to sexual excuse me, sexual maturity and complete the life cycle. And so, um, and they're not really having a lot of easy time of scaling. And a lot of this is because bluefin tuna is a very long lived, very large and very complicated animal. It's, you know, it's like six feet long or two meters long or something like that. And it needs a lot of space. It migrates across the entirety of the ocean. And this means experiments are very difficult to do on them, especially because it takes about three to five years for them to reach sexual maturity. And so that means in order to run one experiment in farming them, it does take three to five years. But for us, since we're working with things on a cellular level, we can have the cells dividing in a matter of 24 hours to maybe like a handful of days. So instead of three to five years per experiment, it's like three to five days per experiment, which makes us able to move much, much faster and hopefully get this to market at a price point that makes sense to people even faster than the current efforts at bluefin aquaculture can scale. And so the first product that we're really focused on initially is a spicy bluefin tuna roll and a non-spicy bluefin tuna roll. Spicy like tuna rolls are pretty common in America. Most Americans are familiar with it which makes that really easy for us. We don't have to do a lot of like customer education on like what this other type of food is. And we think this is a good point for an initial launch because we want to demonstrate ourselves as high quality. We think that sushi demonstrates that. We want to launch ourselves in a market that people trust. We think that people generally trust the US market. And we want to launch ourselves in a place where not only the price point is in favor of like what we're working with, because we're working with some fairly expensive medical technologies trying to make them cheaper, but also, A lot of the problems related to overfishing are caused by this high-end market. You know, people talk a lot about how we're going to need to like feed a larger world and like feed a lot more people. And obviously that's completely true. There's a lot of people that need to be fed, but the people who are really causing environmental devastation are not the people who are part of these expanding populations in the developing world. 50% of lifestyle emissions worldwide are created by the top 10% richest people on earth. And a lot of the bluefin tuna is bought by some of the richest people on earth as well. And so the hope is that if we can undercut this bluefin tuna with something that is, you know, that tastes better, that is cheaper, 
and that is healthier, that people will choose that rather than its wild-caught equivalent, even if they don't really care that much about sustainability or environmentalism or ocean health in general. You started Finless Foods, I believe, in 2016. What made you think this might be possible? I read an article in 2014 called The Blood Harvest in the Atlantic. And this article was about how we harvest horseshoe crabs, which are this like prehistoric looking critter that burrows under the sand. We take its blood and we use it for pharmaceutical quality assurance. Its blood is this very special thing. It's this beautiful opaque blue color. And this blood is able to, it does something very special basically. When it comes in contact with any bacteria or a toxin created by bacteria, it turns the entirety of the solution into jelly. And so you can put a tiny bit of it into batches of drugs people create in the pharma industry. And if it turns to jelly, you know that batch is contaminated. The problem is that we're destroying the ecosystem that these animals live in to catch them. Farming efforts have been unsuccessful and basically we're running out. And if we want to keep making pharmaceuticals that are safe, medicine that's actually safe for people to use, we need to find an alternative way. We need to find another like way to test them. And so these scientists in the 70s set out to create a synthetic equivalent to horseshoe crab blood. And they made this thing called factor C, which did the exact same thing that the horseshoe crab blood did, but was produced outside of a horseshoe crab. And me reading that article, I just thought, well, if you can make horseshoe crab blood outside of a horseshoe crab, why can't you just make any meat outside of an animal? And I was very interested in this idea of like the environmental devastation caused by animal agriculture. And I really wanted to fix it. But to me, it seemed like the only efforts that people were putting towards Fixing it were just people who were like, well, we'll vote with our dollars and we won't buy meat, you know, like vegetarianism and veganism. But that to me doesn't seem like an option for a lot of people. I know a lot of people like don't have the money to constantly look for vegan food or don't have the resources nearby. Or, like the only food that's convenient to them is meat. And so as long as meat is like the more convenient, the better tasting and the cheaper option, people are going to go for it. And so I was like, well, what if we could make something that is all of those things but also is sustainable and is created without this massive environmental strain on the world that we live in. And, and I, I mean, uh, that is <laughs> really fascinating. I'm just kind of sitting there thinking about it. When you started, though, there were other cell-based meat companies out there, some of them probably looking at fish. What made you think you could do something different or differentiate yourself in, in, a, in a budding industry that already had some you know, players going after it? And, and why did you choose fish? Yeah, you know what's funny is this was a really long time ago. And so, yeah, I read that article about horseshoe crabs. And so I started Googling around to see if anyone else had thought about this for animals. And you're right, other people had. But actually, no one had done it in fish. There, were, there was like one research paper out of Truro College in New York where some scientists had created some fish sticks. But that was it. There was never a, a company. And so we set out to create the world's first cell-based seafood company. Prior to us, there really was only, back in 2014, there was really only hamburger that Mark Post out of Maastricht University had created in his lab. And there was an organization called New Harvest, um, I think at the time run by Jason Matheny, who's now at DARPA, who was working towards like funding PhD students to do this research in the public sector. In 2015, the first company was, well, actually, I take that back. There's one company that did exist. It's called Modern Meadow. Um, and it existed in Brooklyn at the time. And that was founded, I think, in 2011 or 2013. But they pivoted to working on leather pretty soon after I like, got interested in this. So they stopped the hamburger research and moved to leather. Memphis Meats created the world's first meatball. They were working on pork. Now they do chicken and duck as well. And they founded in 2015. So basically when we founded the company, there wasn't a cell-based fish company or a cell-based seafood company of any kind. We saw it as a white space. I grew up on the North Shore of Boston in uh, the town called Salem, the one with the witch trials, if you've heard of that. And Salem basically like everywhere north of Salem is a... Um, 
a lot of it's a fishing community. So I'd always grew up like eating a ton of fish and being close to the ocean. And so seeing that there was this like solution towards causing a lot of environmental harm by uh, growing meat outside of an animal, you know, seeing that nobody was working on this on the seafood side and really caring a lot about making sure that we, you know, have an ocean to give to the next generation that really motivated me to, to get this thing moving and to start working specifically in seafood. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting to know because I do think people who who are just sort of casually aware of this space can sort of lump all alternative proteins into one. But but there's some some pretty big differences. I mean, first of all, you've got the plant based proteins like the Beyond Meat Impossible Burger. Then you've got the more cellular based, which is what you're dealing with. But but what's interesting here is there's some nuances there too. I mean, some people are coming at the cell based meat because of their concerns about the about farming. And, and yours is maybe a little bit different, it would seem, because, I mean, there are still concerns about farming and the externalities and overfishing and that sort of thing, but, but maybe a little bit different of an approach than like a Memphis Meats. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a much easier way to get on the market because we're actually filling a market need. You know, for us, we're working on tuna specifically. We don't really have farmers that we're competing with. There are some tuna ranchers, but anytime I talk to these ranchers, they know they're like, we catch the maximum amount of tuna that you can get every year because the ranchers what they do is they catch the tuna when they're between like zero and two years old bring them into their ranch and fatten them up for harvest but everyone who's like related to the ocean and all of these fields all knows like you know the ocean is fragile and that's become very clear for people working on the ocean-based food side of things because on land you know if you want to make more cattle you can always like you know you know i say this a lot and this week in particular it's kind of sad to say but you can always burn down more rainforests to you know create more land to grow you know the soy that you want to feed to these cows or to have the cows have grazing land themselves but in terms of fish if you can't farm a fish yet like bluefin or like tuna in general you know that's kind of it and so the entire fishing industry including the fish farmers really seem excited about this technology as a means of you know producing this type of fish that currently has a very very limited supply Everyone's excited to feed better food to people and, and more food to people. And on top of that, I think what's particularly interesting for us as Americans, you know, we're based in California. I grew up in Boston, lived in New York a bunch, is that like 94% of the seafood that we eat in America is in one way or another imported. And I know that number sounds high. It's because about 30% actually, we still actually produce ourselves. We either catch it or farm it. But then that's actually shipped out to China for processing and then shipped back here. So while, yeah, it's domestically imported, it's domestically produced, it's not fresh. And so what's cool about this technology is we actually give Americans this opportunity to have really fresh fish for kind of the first time for a lot of people. I know like one of my first times eating fish outside of the country was in Norway and I was eating the salmon that they produce there. And it's just like a totally different ball game from the stuff that you can find at the supermarkets here. You know, growing up near Boston, obviously like I've been fishing and like caught fish and had people catch fish around me and I've eaten fresh fish before. But I didn't realize that you could actually have fresh fish in a grocery store or a restaurant because anywhere that you go in America, it's just, it's not fresh. It's going to be something that was caught, you know, in Southeast Asia or produced here, shipped to Southeast Asia and then shipped back. And so Norway eating like fish in a restaurant was one of the first times where I was like, oh my God, you can actually have a good, fresh restaurant experience with fish. And we hope that through our technology, we can bring that type of experience to people in America, even if they're not really interested in the environmental concerns. I'm just kind of, this is a totally random question, but as you're developing this, who, who took the first bite? <laughs> who took the first bite? That's a good question. Um, it was my, so it depends on what the first bite would count as. I would say my co-founder took the first bite. My CSO and co-founder, Brian Wyrus, him and one of our employees at the time, I think on September 
6th of 2017 was the first time any of us ate any of it. They wanted to test a little bit of it because two days later on September 8th of 20, sorry, this is 2017, not 2018, excuse me. September 8th, we had the first ever tasting and we had uh, gotten a reporter to, to fly in from the UK. Um, and she wrote up an article for us in The Guardian. And so I think everyone was just kind of nervous and we're like, I hope it tastes good. <laughs> so uh, he wanted to try a little bit. And he was like, it's good, it's fish. And then uh, soon after that, like I had some, I think I had technically like the third bite or something, but you know, it was still really exciting. You know, at the time when we ate it two years ago, there were less people who had eaten, you know, cell-based meat than had gone to space because there's like about, you know, like 500 or 600 people who have ever gotten out of the atmosphere and gone to space. And at that point, there were so few companies that have been working on this and so few scientists working on this that I think we were like in the, you know, probably 200s or so of people who had ever eaten this stuff. And I was like, that's really cool. This is a really cool thing for me. And so we try and make sure that everybody at Finless gets to try some, you know, like fairly quickly because we want people to be in on that experience. We think that's kind of bonding where it's like, hey, you know, if you work here and you're like, you know, working with us on this team, you get to be like one of the first to do this like kind of cool thing. It's like being one of the first people in space. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up space. It's a great segue <laughs> for me because actually you were introduced to me from Fatima Kaplan about kind of interstellar agriculture and, and sort of what would food look like if we went to space. And she thought you would be an excellent person to sort of talk about that. Can you maybe explain a little further about why this fits in the context of sort of food and farming when it comes to space? Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, I, I love Fatma. She's fantastic. She is so smart and she is it's so like incredibly funny and so giving and, and so cool in so many ways. We got to go through any bio together. And yeah, like, you know, it's funny. I've sort of become a little bit of like a space agriculture expert, but I'll admit like when we started the company, I really didn't think about it. I totally didn't. That was not an idea that I had. It was an idea presented to me by other people who were like talking to me about it. And they're like, you could do this in space. And my initial reaction was like, yeah, I Yes, I mean, you can do anything in space, right? And I had just not put any thought into it, but they were like, well, you know, there's really no way to, like, if we ever establish any sort of permanent residency in space, like a moon colony, a Mars colony, or like a permanent satellite that people don't just constantly go back up and down from, there's really no way to, um, like, produce meat at all, especially something like tuna. Like, how are you going to ship, you know, like a six foot long fish into space and keep it alive? along with the, another one so that they can breed with all the water necessary for them to swim around in, like there's just no way. So it's like if you're actually going to have fish be a possibility for people to eat in space and actually have like a permanent space residency for anybody, you would need to do it this way. Because with this, you can just send up, you know, a little vial of cells. You can send up an amount of cells, you know, the size of like your fingernail. And from that, as long as you're sending up like the salts, sugars, and amino acids that you need to feed it, or if you grow those through, you know, plant-based agriculture in space, the, the um, amino acids, you know, harvest the salts somewhere else, maybe on some sort of like asteroid body or something. I'm not, you know, this is sort of showing how little I know about space, I think. But um, if you can harvest those materials somehow in space, you could actually have meat growing in space. Way more efficient than sending up like a cow, which to me sounds like a mess. Imagine strapping a cow into a rocket, uh, how much weight that would be and how much space that would require and how finicky that could be. This seems like the only way. 
Yeah, no, and, and the expense of it, it, it's just outrageous what it what it costs to send anything into space. And so, no, it makes a ton of sense. And, and that kind of gets me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the production of this. So essentially, you're, what you're delivering is, is actually fish. I mean, it is the cells of fish that you have grown from originally taking a, a piece of meat and then replicating those cells by feeding them these salts and amino acids and sugars. Is that right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And yeah, so the process itself, you know, in order to create something that is on a cellular level, the same meat that people are eating right now, it's not too complicated of a process. We're basically trying to imitate what goes on inside of an animal. And I like to break this up into two phases because I think it's confusing to people because they're like, okay, you take a sample from an animal and then you make more meat out of it. So aren't you just, you're still using animals, right? Um, And the answer is sort of. Basically, there's two pieces. I like to break it down into the R&D phase and the production phase. So R&D, yeah, we're taking samples of meat from animals and then trying to basically just pick the healthiest cells out of that mix. And then what you've got there is a cell population that's super healthy and you can like keep that, uh, you can freeze it down, you can send it out to different facilities for, for use in production later. And then, and that's called your cell line, like cells that will actually propagate, divide out and uh, become muscle when you need them to. And then you have to design a feed for them. You know, those salts, sugars, amino acids, and then I, I didn't say earlier, but also you, you need proteins as well. Um, those are proteins, the molecule, not proteins like chicken, beef, whatever. Um, you can produce them using microbial fermentation. You can isolate them from plants. There's a million ways to make them. And so once you've got that media mix tailored to the cells, like that media mix is the feed with all the nutrients, then you move into the production phase. At that point, you take those cells that are no longer really using an animal at all, putting them into a system that essentially looks a lot like a fermentation tank at a brewery. It's a big tank and you'd probably seed it at like a low density. Generally when this is done with animal cells in pharma, you'd seed something at a density of like 0.5 grams per liter and you'd grow them up in pharma they grow them to 20 grams per liter. And that process takes like, you know, about six days um, and then you have to have some cleaning and turnarounds. It's about a week to fill the whole thing. But at the end of it, if you actually have a pretty large bioreactor, say you have like a 15,000 liter bioreactor, that's like the biggest that's like on market commercially available today. In a year, you can actually create almost 500 tons of fish meat. And that's actually at like a, a fairly, at fairly low densities. You can go much higher than that. You know, if you go from like 20 grams to like a, anyway, don't wanna get too technical in there, but basically like you're, you have the cells growing out and dividing. All you're doing is basically having these cells do the exact same natural process that happens inside you, me, and any animal at any given time. You have these cells that are floating around called satellite cells. These cells are being fed nutrients. They can divide and create more of themselves. And then when you get like a cut somewhere in your body, these cells come to the location of the wound and then they will turn into the missing pieces and like knit things together. So these cells are already like naturally doing what we want them to do. We just want them to do it outside of an animal. And so the process here is about finding the exact right like settings of temperature and fluctuations in temperature, the exact right pH, the right gas flow, the right nutrients, et cetera. There's a lot of variables that we have to work with there, but basically at the end of it, we can end up with some, with some real fish produced in the same way that fish is produced today, just not involving the inefficient system of animals. As far as, you know, when you go to market, can you sell it as fish or does it, I mean, what's the, the FDA, USDA, those groups, what do they say about all this? No, it's a really good question. The jury's still out and people don't really know 100% what will, will happen or will not happen. We feel very strongly that we do need to be able to use the word fish, that we do need to call this fish, and not just fish, but the exact species that we're working with. Like if we isolate cells from a bluefin tuna, 
that's going to create bluefin tuna, not salmon. And so one of the main reasons that we think it's super important for us to use these words is if it, it can actually create a lot of problems if we don't. So if you're allergic to seafood right now, you're almost definitely going to be allergic to the stuff that we make. And so if we don't call it by the right term, we're actually creating a public safety hazard. 2.4% of Americans, 7 million people, have uh, an allergy to seafood one way or another. And we'd be putting those people in danger if we don't call these things by what they actually are, which is fish. They're actually, I, I don't remember if it's an FDA initiative or not, but there actually is a set of eight allergens that must always be labeled. Seafood's one of them. And not just seafood, we actually have to label it with the specific type of seafood, be it tuna or salmon, et cetera. It ends up with some interesting stuff where like some people who are allergic to like crustaceans like crabs are also allergic to crickets. And so now crickets actually have to be labeled with like things indicating like seafood allergies um, in order to prevent people from, you know, being hurt. And I think that we'll definitely need to, you know, use the right name to make sure that people aren't eating this by accident and ending up in shock. Yeah. And what about, you mentioned the bioreactor and you said, well, you know, you could, you could, obviously you could replicate that as many times as you wanted to. Do you see this as being a, you know, you have a, a large manufacturing facility for this, or do you see it as more decentralized where you could have, like you were talking about earlier, fresh fish in multiple parts of the country with, you know, almost like uh, microbreweries, fish microbreweries around, around the world? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I, I guess it, I would say it's not one that's been answered yet, but I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't really see this as being like one massive, you know, facility in one location that then ships out to the entire country. Our vision for this company is to have production facilities in like every major city. So there is a bit of centralization, right, where it would really be in like centers of population where people are, but we don't see it being like one massive facility. One of the things that makes this a lot easier is that we need a fairly small footprint in order to create this. If you think of like one mariculture net, like one big aquaculture net, those things are about 50 meters wide. On a year-to-year -year basis, you can equal one of those nets with two 15,000 liter bioreactors. That's a footprint of like six meters as opposed to 50 meters, five zero. And so because of that, you can actually just not even worry about like having to use tons of land. You could actually fit these bioreactors like in the basements of buildings in large cities. And with just two of these 15,000 liter bioreactors, yeah, you can do a good amount of tonnage. And so this reduced footprint really allows us to, I would say, decentralize this technology and allows us to put it into the center of every city to reduce on transit costs, as well as reduce on like all the greenhouse gas emissions associated with transiting fish from where they're produced into where it's eaten. And the other thing that I want to point out is like fish farmers know this is actually a really big problem right now, which is that Fish farming has is, is got lots of efficiencies and there's a lot of really great things about it. But one of the problems they're facing is they're running out of space to do it. A lot of these fish need very specific settings in terms of current and temperature, et cetera. And we're running out of the perfect type of place offshore to actually have these nets. And so a lot of research is being done into open ocean nets, which are really far from land. But they require a really high degree of automation that we're kind of not at yet. And it's really hard to get like a workforce out to the middle of the ocean every single day to check on these things. So one of the big advantages of this is that while aquaculture, yeah, the amount of aquaculture facilities is still increasing and the speed itself at which they are growing is still increasing, the acceleration has started to go down on the creation of new aquaculture facilities. And a lot of this, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the big ones is that they're running out of space. And so what this technology does, is it frees us up from that. It says, hey, like you can actually produce this anywhere because it's a totally controlled environment. You could be in the basement of any city. You can be in the middle of the desert. It doesn't really matter. You can set this up entirely independent of like, you know, 
the temperature, the, the water, the sun, et cetera, because it's totally separate. Yeah. And you, you bring up a great point there and a great point about the the transportation costs. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people don't take into consideration. You know, they think, oh, I'm buying sustainably caught X, Y, and Z, but th- there's there's other sustainability factors there, kind of externalities associated. And I, I'm curious with this, are there any byproducts of this process or externalities involved that that are notable when it comes to when it comes to cellular growth of, of protein like this? Definitely. So, you know, one of the main things that are, you know, cells, they eat nutrients and they use nutrients. They also give off signals. One of the things they'll give off is metabolites, which is definitely something that needs to be taken care of. You know, just like animal agriculture, we too will have waste one way or another. And there are ways to mitigate this. There are really great recycling systems that already work on contract manufacturing organizations as is. These recycling systems for animal cell culture can usually get up to like 40 to 50% recycling, which is pretty good. But, you know, there isn't a total solution yet. Something that really could be done to drastically reduce the amount of waste coming out of this is to work in a co-culture system. So that's like what your body and my body are doing right now, which is that, you know, our cells are giving off trash, but that trash is actually oftentimes used up by other cell types. So setting up a system where a few different cell types, like muscle cells, liver cells, pancreas cells, all are sort of in the same, in the same flow of nutrients, you could end up like using a lot of this waste actually as food for other types of cells and putting it back into the same system. So that'd be one way that it could really help neutralize some of the waste that comes out of this. And since it's so controlled and like the cells can really do exactly what we need, there's a lot of other things that we won't need in terms of waste. You know, in aquaculture, they've just recently in Norway and in in Northern Europe, they've managed to, I think, remove the entirety of antibiotics from almost the entirety of the process but it's difficult. And now sometimes they actually end up losing a bit more fish is my understanding because of that. For us, since we're doing it in this clean environment, we don't need to use antibiotics at all. And so for us, it means that we're not going to have antibiotics in our waste. And so, you know, a lot of gains are to be made because of the sterility and the enclosure of our systems. So that means we'll actually have considerably less inputs, meaning that on the other side, we'll have a lot less output as well. And obviously it doesn't mitigate everything. We're definitely going to have some kind of waste, but the systems haven't really been scaled yet. And so it sort of like remains to be seen exactly what that is. Very interesting. And so you would just need kind of another bioreactor to grow another type of cell that they would be grown on the medium of, of the waste from, from, let's say, bluefin tuna. Exactly. And people are working on this. There's actually a really, really cool company. It's also that's actually specifically focused on cellular agriculture for space. They're called Integriculture and they're based out of Tokyo. And they are already like demonstrating these co-culture systems with like three tanks with three different cell types in them that are like demonstrating actually surprisingly high levels of efficiency to my mind. I didn't think we had the technology to figure it out at all. So even watching somebody figure it out so soon, I was really impressed by that. Yeah, no, me too. There goes my idea for for a cellular agriculture waste management company. I'm already disrupted. You know, you can still take the idea and do it in America. They're very Japan-focused. It's funny, they have, like, this is kind of a side topic, but in case people are interested, like, the Japanese venture capital system is so interesting because they have everything they need there. Like, a lot of other companies in other countries are very interested in, like, going externally and, like, talking to people in other countries and being international. But Japan has so much venture capital and so many entrepreneurs and so many different ventures that some of these companies, including this one, are like, yeah... We just don't really feel like making English language pitch decks. We don't need to. So if you're interested in like new opportunities in the venture capital system or like new investment things that, uh, that no one else has access to, learn Japanese, apparently. 
Yeah, I guess so. Or if 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 you are interested and you want to fund a a trip for me to go out there with an interpreter and capture <laughs> all this stuff on podcast and video, you contact me because I'm willing to do that. I've been to Japan once and it's it's mind-bogglingly cool. No, this is all really fascinating. I, I'm curious about getting back to something you said earlier about the costs. You know, are the are the costs are are we? I, I know we're getting cheaper, but how close are we to this actually competing with the wholesale price point of bluefin tuna? Since that's the product we're talking about right now. Yeah, it's a good question. So you know, we're not there. It's going to take a bit for us to actually get to the exact right price. Bluefin tuna, you know, in restaurants in California to the end consumer. It's usually sold for between seven and twelve dollars for two pieces of sashimi. That translates to about one hundred and fifty dollars per pound. But that's to the end consumer. Obviously, wholesale it's cheaper. It's kind of hard to get an exact price on where it is a lot of the time because a lot of the stuff is mislabeled and a lot of the like supply chain is kind of dark. Like a lot of people don't want to talk about it, especially because they've been such like an activist push to harass these restaurants that they're not really super psyched to release information because a lot of it just gets used for like attacks on them, which, you know, I totally understand them not wanting to, to talk because of that. I think uh, everyone in agriculture can understand that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and yeah, so it, it makes sense. So when we ask them stuff, we don't get tons of answers, but that's to be expected. You know, if you're working with standard form and numbers, you can actually get to a fairly reasonable price point. So like, you know, for example, in pharma for animal cell culture right now, this is going to get into the weeds a little bit. I'm going to be talking some numbers for a sec. But basically, the standard is about 20 grams per liter. And that's done in pharma because the animal cells that are grown at scale are used to create a product. They are not in the in and of themselves the product. The cells will create, they'll produce like an enzyme or pharmaceutical of some sort or an antibody. And then the cells get filtered out. So they don't want to grow them at very high densities because that'll crush their product. For us, the cells are the product, so we can actually go considerably higher. There's a lot of, like, a lot, a lot, a lot of research out there demonstrating it can go way above 100 grams per liter. But even just let's keep it at 20. Let's keep it at what does standard in pharma. And then let's talk about the media for a second and pricing there. If you can get that media down to a pretty decent price, this actually gets very reasonable. So the media itself is going to be comprised of salts, sugars, amino acids, and proteins. The salts, sugars, and amino acids are going to be gotten through like food safe sources, very standard stuff. And basically that, there's a lot of analyses on like how much that might cost when done for food instead of pharma. But the analysis that I'm looking at puts it at about like 30 cents a liter for all the salts, sugars, and amino acids you need. So let's, let's really jack that up. Let's go from 30 cents a liter to $2 a liter. Let's pretend that we really can't get a good supply chain on that. And it's, you know, like six to seven times more expensive than what we think. That's at $2 a liter. And then let's talk about growth factors. Those are the really expensive part. So if you can get your growth factors, you know, down to like basically what's standard, growth factors are proteins. So that means they're produced at about like a dollar per factor per liter. Generally in animal cell culture, you'll need between two and eight of these growth factors. That's between two and $8 per liter that you'll be adding. Our initial numbers that we use take like $8 worth of growth factors and $2 worth of salt, sugars, and amino acids for a $10 per liter media being very conservative. And that gets us down to, you know, within the hundreds of dollars per pound, which is not fantastic. But if you can then, you know, jack the density up from the five grams per liter that you start off at to 20 grams per liter, and you can cut your media costs in half. So instead of, you know, the, the $2 per liter of salt, sugars, and amino acids, cut that down to 50 cents. 
the estimates that people are doing are about 30 cents. So it's like a little bit less than double what people are saying. And then instead of using eight growth factors, you only use four. We actually don't even use that right now, but let's say that you have to use that many. So you have 450 per liter. You're at actually $50 per pound of pure cells. And that's just using technology that already exists in pharma right now. The theoretical limits of this can go considerably better than that. There's tons of papers that show densities up to like 150 grams per liter. You can show media down to like $2 or $2.18 per liter. And if you can get there, you're at like $3 per pound or less. And then if you're hooking up co-culture systems to this, like using different cell types to recycle media back in, you can theoretically hit like, you know, pennies per pound. It's going to take some time to get there. This isn't something that's happening tomorrow. It's something that's going to take a good amount of research. But all of this is something that already happens inside of an animal. And there's no way that we can't make something more efficient than what goes on in there because an animal needs to do a lot of things that aren't, you know, creating meat. Animals, they, they breathe and that takes energy. They move, they have heartbeats, they blink, they, you know, thrash around, they, they have muscles that do all sorts of things other than what is necessary to actually grow the meat. I um, mean, all that stuff is sort of like a, a loss of input. I mean, that's why animal agriculture systems are usually, you talk about the feed conversion ratio, You'll have a feed conversion ratio for some systems of like nine pounds of feed to one pound of animal. The most efficient system that exists really is like salmon, which is actually close to a dollar, sorry, a one pound of feed per one pound of animal, which is one pound of meat, which is astonishing and almost seems impossible. And the only reason that it's functional is because they're growing the salmon in the water. And so the salmon are able to eat some of the ambient stuff floating around in there, some of the algae and the plankton. And so you can't do that forever. You know, there isn't enough room to constantly make that type of fish farm. So basically like, you know, I think that just because of how inefficient animals inherently are and how many externalities they have that aren't producing food, you know, if you look at the numbers that we're talking about here and look at what they do in pharma, we can definitely undercut how much it costs to produce meat from an animal using this type of technology. Hmm. And does that, is, is that one sort of deterrent from fish is that they are so efficient from a feed conversion standpoint? Yeah, I would say that's the case. And actually, that's why we're really not tangling with stuff like salmon. Salmon's really sustainable. The farming of salmon is done really, really well. And just we don't want to mess with that. Like we think that the people who are working on that are doing a really excellent job of creating like a sustainable food supply for everybody. And so for us right now, we really want to tackle fish that currently can't be farmed at scale because we think that's a really important effort. And also it helps us because it's some of the more expensive stuff usually because it's, you know, can't be farmed. So the supply of it is less. That helps us get to market faster. Yeah. So with, with, with stuff like this, where, you know, cellular agriculture in general, it seems like, first of all, it's this wide open frontier where they're just, are, the, the possibilities are endless and, and really are not bound by what we're used to eating in the past. I mean, we could theoretically, you know, grow cells that into even tastier products with even better texture because, because of the possibility. So, so why, why focus on something that, that people already know is just because of consumer adoption to get them used to this idea? Is that, is that kind of the idea? You know, it's interesting. I would say we're doing both. Like a lot of our focus is on bluefin tuna, but I would say part of that is because of how the venture capital system functions. You know, investors want to see that you've got a market that exists. And when you're proposing a kind of like new theoretical technology that's like technically never been done before, people get kind of nervous. And so using real numbers really helps them. So pointing at like, you know, hey, the seafood market's $134 billion. $42 billion of that is different types of tuna. So it's the biggest single plurality. And $2 billion of that is bluefin. So it's a pretty big market that we can attack that we can then use to expand into more seafood stuff. That said, I think what could be really exciting about this is that we could localize exotic species. There's this really amazing type of eel that I love and I have every time I go to Japan called hamo. 
I don't think we have access to it in America at all, or at least I've never seen it and can't find it. I would love to be able to bring that to an American audience and to show people new tastes and new textures, like new types of fish that they, that they currently like, you know, don't grow anywhere near here and we can't farm. And so the supply is constrained entirely to places like Japan or, you know, to like Mediterranean or stuff like from the Caribbean, we can export that elsewhere, create that elsewhere. It'd be really cool to create like a system in which you can actually create any type of fish, no matter how exotic in any location, no matter how dry, cold, hot, etc. And I think that's what's really exciting about this technology. We don't really lean on that messaging so much, especially when talking to investors, because you can't, what is the market size for that? You know, it's like so difficult to figure that kind of thing out. It's all based on conjecture. And so using real numbers of products that people are already familiar with makes, I think, a more palatable message. And sticking to fish that people are already familiar with means it's easier for us. It's easier for people to understand what we're doing in the first place instead of having to educate people in America immediately about all these new types of fish that they haven't had before. Hmm. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if we can even revive extinct species and one day we'll be eating woolly mammoth meat. You know, it's really funny that you said that. I have eaten woolly mammoth gelatin. I'm sorry, let me, let me rephrase. I've eaten mastodon gelatin because somebody can produce that now. There's this really interesting company called Geltor and they're making collagen and they're doing it currently just for cosmetics. But some of their initial, the idea of the company initially was to create gelatin for food. Cosmetics is a higher quality and more expensive market. So they're moving to that first. But I got to have a gummy bear made of mastodon, which is so cool because that's a species that's been extinct for so, so long. And since you can find mastodon DNA, you know, you can produce mastodon gelatin. To create like an extinct species on a cellular level like we're doing would, would be a little bit more difficult because you'd need to not just find the DNA, which can preserve a little bit better. You need to find entire cells. Not impossible, though. It's something that could happen, especially with all these de-extinction projects that are going on. There's this really cool organization called Revive and Restore. I don't know if you've talked to them, but it's not really agriculture focused, but they're working on trying to bring back some extinct species so we can study them. And so maybe a project like that could end up in creating, you know, the woolly mammoth meat that we've all always wanted. <laughs> this is the coolest thing I've, I've heard in a long time. So I'm really, really, really enjoying this. I, I know our, our time is short. A couple of things I, I do want to ask you about just on a real basic question. What is the path to market here? Obviously, you've got some milestones in terms of getting the cost down. But what does that look like for Finless Foods? Yeah, right now, what we're really working on is scale. We've gotten these cells functioning. They are growing out at a really good rate. The media is getting like cheaper and cheaper at a pretty good rate. And like it's already tasting really good. We've had to put a lot of work into that. And I would say that that still requires a little bit more work. We have a thing, a challenge ahead of us, like about feeding the cells. Because, you know, grass-fed beef tastes different from grain-fed beef. What you feed fish in any given farm is going to make them taste different. And that's a problem that fish farmers have had to deal with for a really long time. And so what's lucky for us is we're able to draw on their knowledge of how to feed fish to make them taste right. But that's something that's actually been getting better and better. I would say the big challenge that we face right now is scale is just getting these cells functioning in a bulk production format rather than in this sort of like much smaller scale format that we have them in right now. Well, I, I would love to try some, so I can't wait uh, for it to be available. I, I am first in line because I, I, I think this stuff is just really, really cool. One thing I found is I've just kind of thought a little bit more about issues related to biotechnologies. It, it calls into question some really basic words in my mind. Like for example, you know, when is, is something alive? You know what I mean? Like you're selling fish. Would you say that your fish is ever alive? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, it's funny. We talked about this a little bit in bioethics back in college and like, what is the definition of life? Like are viruses alive and they have DNA, but they're basically just complicated molecules walking around, you know, and they're, they're really basing the way that they move on like biophysics, essentially. These like atoms have like push and pull and like 
what's the word, like electricity um, charge, that's the word I wanted, that pushes them around so they can move correctly. Are those things alive? It's hard to say. And then it's like, cells definitely can live and die, that's for sure. And I would say that at some point our cells are alive, and then at a different point they are dead. And same with all the fish cells that get eaten today. You know, those cells were alive when they were inside of a fish, but they die pretty quickly before they get to you. It's difficult to actually end up with fresh fish on your plate, especially in America. So, you know, I'll leave that to, to the philosophers, I would say. You know, a lot of people ask us questions like that, like, is it alive? Or they ask, is it vegan or is it vegetarian? And I'm like, you know, what we want to do is make good, healthy, sustainable food for people that tastes great and sells itself, you know, on really tasting great, being, you know, affordable and being nutritious. And I'll let everyone else decide. You know, I feel like that's, that's, uh, I don't want to get cocky and, and, and uh, push the limits of like what I can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a term like vegan is, is defined by what it excludes mm. um, and very, very interesting because this doesn't really fall into what they're trying to exclude or, or maybe some of the, some of the aspects they're trying to exclude from the diet. Uh, man, I find this stuff just endlessly fascinating. One last question, you know, 10 years from now, your vision as, as a co-founder and CEO of Finless Foods, how does the world look different uh, because of, of Finless Foods' uh, projected success by that time? I really hope that 10 years is so much time. Uh, 10 years from now, I just hope that we're letting the oceans get back to the way they were. I really hope that we can like, transition this like industrial fishing into something that's just like cleaner, safer, gentler, fresher, cheaper, that's on land. And that's like actually in reach for people. And, you know, I'm not here to be like, no one should fish or like fishing is wrong. Cause I don't even agree with that. You know, I would love for industrial fishing to go away in a pretty big way so that people can enjoy fishing. I, I would love to see like, you know, indigenous people in like Southeastern Asia taking back their own waters and going back to using the ocean for the, to, to survive. And I want to see like, you know, uh, near my hometown in Massachusetts, I want to see the, the people who used to fish there actually get back into doing it rather than like these big automated boats, like dredging the ocean for everything that it has. And it's funny because people think, you know, since we're doing this, like, well, do you hate fisher people? Do you hate people who fish? And I'm like, not at all. And actually like some of our biggest supporters are people who love fishing. Because what we can do is make the ocean like not to bear the brunt of the food that we all want to eat and instead let it go back to being this like big, diverse, like biologically sound ecosystem that we can coexist with and actually just use for like fishing as a sport or like fishing for fun or fishing as bonding and like a social exercise between people instead of this big industrial operation that it is right now that's clearly like not creating good outcomes for anybody. So that's like, you know, a bit of a broader vision, I would say. And, you know, it's, it doesn't have as many details as, as maybe people would like. But that's kind of my vision for what we can do is like set the ocean back to the way that it was and allow people to use it in the way that we used to. Yeah, well, as a as a hobbyist fisherman myself and an agriculturalist, I, I think this is a fantastic idea, and I am I am wishing you the best. I'm inspired by this interview. I'm sure other people listening are as well. If they want to join the cause in whatever capacity you know they can, finlessfoods.com is that the best place to send them? Yeah, definitely. And we're on Twitter, and I think that's where we're most active. But we've got a, a Facebook and an Instagram. They're not super active, but you know. We'll be posting more there, like in terms of updates as we as we grow and as we expand and as we eventually come to market. So feel free to do that. Um, we're just finless foods and any of those things. Then I'm I'm on Twitter at Mike Selden FF. Yeah, and feel free to reach out to me there. I love talking to people and talking about what we do. Fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, this has been really a lot of fun. 
Thanks so much, Tim. This was really uh, great questions. I really enjoyed being on this. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much one more time to Mike Selden for being on the show. I thought this was such an interesting perspective on the future of agriculture. And I cannot thank enough Dr. Fatima Kaplan for introducing me to Mike. She also introduced me to Ray Wheeler from NASA that you heard in an earlier episode and to Dr. John Cumbers, who you heard from Sinbio Beta a couple episodes ago. Thank you, Fatima, so much. I'll get a chance to tell you in person when we uh, do the interview that that we're going to feature you here upcoming. But all of this relating to sort of what food production might look like in space and what it might look like here on Earth as well. Really, really enjoying this stuff. I hope you are getting some value from it as well. If you are, feel free to leave me a rating and review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. I'm, I've been off Twitter lately, taking a little break from Twitter. So if you want to reach me, LinkedIn or via email, tim at agrad.com. Thanks so much for your time and your attention and the curiosity you have about the future of agriculture is what keeps driving me to do this every week. We'll be back next week with another Ag innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey,